The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Building Banking on Values with your host, Linda Ryan. Banking today can depend on a variety of factors, including where you bank. It's time to put the power back into your pockets. It's time to change what you think you know about banking. Now, here is Linda Ryan. Welcome back to the Building Banking on Values show, a series that goes behind the scenes to shine a light on the growing global values-based banking movement. Now, I like to call it a positive money movement, but some call it ethical banking or sustainable banking, and even I've heard it called just banking. But whatever the phrase, it's about banks putting people before profit and committing to a mission of creating social, economic, and environmental impact. So it's different to the traditional form of banking that we'd all be aware of. Either way, whatever you want to call it, um, I like to think it's quite different, and that's why we've developed this series to go behind the scenes. Um, And like this radio series, the movement, the Banking on Values movement, is growing in popularity. And I'd like to celebrate the fact that the series is growing in popularity, too. In fact, in the last week alone, our listeners have grown by 1,000. So thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening. And also thanks for sharing. Um, Please let your friends, your family, your colleagues know about this show, because this is how we change a sector. Um, that we all invest in because at the end of the day, we're all bankers. And this is how we create a positive money movement just by raising awareness. In this series so far, we've explored lots of interesting topics. So we've looked at whether banking can have a social conscience. We've looked at the concept of feminine banking and the people lobbying and teaching for change in the sector. We've looked at how research and governance can change banking practice, whether investment banking can have a heart and how different models of values-based financial institutions like credit unions and microfinance organizations can actually build economic resiliency and financial inclusion. And on today's show, we're going to meet Tamara Vrooman from Van City in Canada and Susan Arterian Chang from the Field Guide to Investing in Regenerative Economy in the States. Both ladies are believers in how banking can and should go beyond the balance sheet. But before all that, um, let's hear from David Cordland. David joins us weekly on the show, and he's a veteran strategic advisor to the values-based banking sector. He's going to take us uh, behind the banking news headlines. Welcome to the show, David. Hey, Linda. Good to be back on. Great to have you. I hope you had a good vacation in France. It's wrapping up today. I'm on way heading back home. Uh, okay. So have you had a chance to take a look at the news headlines and um, are there interesting articles that you want to share with us that relate to uh, this growing movement? Yeah, there's actually three articles I want to focus on this week, Linda. Uh, the first one comes from, um, uh, actually it's a response a bit to what you talked about last week where you were expressing your concerns about the low interest rate environment and so forth. And there was a very interesting article this week of uh, comments from uh, Mario Draghi, who's the head of the European Central Bank. 
and he he was quite strong about uh, pushing back against some of the German criticism of those of of those low interest rates, which have been quite high. What made that interesting is I think that uh, he had a really interesting comment: is, is don't blame the symptom uh, for what the problem is, and he sees the problem as not being low interest rates, but lack of investments. There's a lot of money that's been saved up, but there's been not enough investments for that money to be deployed into. And if there were more investments, then the uses for the money would grow and then the costs for the money would grow. So he, he sort of turns around and says, let's focus on what the real issue is, which is we're not investing enough. And, and that actually leads to an interesting set of thoughts about where should the investments go. And I think if you look at the infrastructure in Europe, if you look at the infrastructure in North America, and if you look at the infrastructure throughout the rest of the world, the demand for investment in infrastructure that supports the real economy and the growth of the real economy is enormous. So it's not that there aren't projects that could be uh, funded or require investment dollars, but that's just not happening. And if you compound that by the investments required to shift the economy to be more environmentally friendly, to support the growth of alternative energy and other sorts of things, that's a whole nother layer of investments. And, and so the question is, why aren't those uh, projects taking off? Why aren't they being invested in? And I see that as a, a real lack of both uh, political and business leadership saying, well, actually, we do have places where we can invest our money. And we should be investing our money in improving the infrastructure that makes the world better in the future. We should be investing in a more green economy that makes the world uh, better on so many different fronts. But that's not happening. And so to sort of push back about, about your concerns last week, I think what we should not do is focus on the low interest rates or the growth of the money supply. What we should focus on is why aren't investments being made to make a better world for the future? And, David, it's interesting you, you, you pose that kind of question. Let me ask it back to you. Why do you think that is? I mean, if there are wonderful projects out there that can create economic, social, and environmental impact, you know, to hit that triple bottom line and give a, a, a very good and stable return, why aren't either people or institutional investors actually investing in them? What, what's the challenge? I, I think it's a lack of leadership, Linda. I think on the one hand, you have an awful lot of people who think uh, government should just cut spending, cut spending, cut spending. And that's not to say that governments spend all the money well um, or that there shouldn't be some cuts in spending. But there's been a, a such a focus uh, in in this economic de de recession, depression we've had since 2008, caused by an out-of-control financial sector, uh, on cutting government spending uh, so that there, there isn't a chance for the, for, for the government in times to provide leadership on what needs to be done. And I think the second thing is that the, the risk uh, appetite for many investors is so so low right now that they're not willing to, to, to look at how they can invest their future. You see that in, in companies that are sitting on enormous amounts of cash. I, I think there are other reasons I don't fully understand, but it seems to me that people should be thinking about 
understanding those symptoms, those causes, rather than focusing on the symptom. And that's, that, I think, was what Mario Draghi was very effectively saying in, in saying, in, in essence, to the Germans, and look at your own uh, house. What do you have to do to improve your uh, infrastructure? What do you have to do to convert your economy to be more green? Start investing in those projects and use the money that's out there, and that will raise the cost of money, which will raise interest rates. Right. So it's it's really a call for governments to, I guess, lead by example. You know, if if they want to create this um, positive change from an economic and social and even environmental perspective, then we shouldn't simply be relying on private investors to do that, that governments have an opportunity and perhaps even a, a strong role to play in leading by example and beginning to look at this kind of wholesale investment in this triple, triple bottom line approach. Governments can lead, but also business has to lead. And I think okay. there's a huge issue there of business also taking a leadership role. Uh, so it's not just governments, but both. And And what I see is... Uh, neither leading at the moment, and if both would lead even just a little bit, it could change it quite a bit. And how can businesses lead? You know, is it a case of you know if they ha- if they're sitting on on cash or um, what should they be doing? Should they be going to a bank and saying, "I'm interested in a portfolio of sustainable, sustainably responsible investments"? Or are, you've been in the banking sector many years. You know, how does someone actually start that conversation with their bank? Well, the, it doesn't necessarily need to be with the banks because some of that could be done by the uh, the businesses themselves. So, so if you take uh, where a lot of the cash in the economy is sitting right now, sitting with technology companies, what do technology companies use? Lots of energy. So I believe that technology companies should be taking a real leading role in finding ways of converting to a, a much more green energy uh, source. Some of them are doing that, but they could do much more. So as opposed to having Amazon and Google sitting on all that cash, I would say get out there and invest in some uh, renewable energy projects uh, that would provide energy not only for your operations, but for society in general. Don't just sit in the cash. That's not what I would recommend. Great advice. Okay, so what else is happening in the news, David? Well, then the uh, second, so that was sort of response to you last week. And then the second piece uh, came out just today, uh, and it uh, came out of the, uh, out of the, uh, out of the U.S., and it's a fairly important shift in regulatory front uh, led by the Consumer Finance uh, uh, Financial Protection Bureau, which is taking away, moving, uh, taking away the rights of banks and large financial institutions to use arbitration to solve problems with clients. Uh, it's a little-known fact, but in the U.S., uh, there's been a development of law that makes it possible for large companies to have uh, consumers, when they sign contracts, have lots of fine print. And in that fine print is a, uh, an agreement that you will not take the company to court, but you will only use arbitration. And what that's led to is an enormous decrease in complaints against, being, against banks going to, to class action suits. And uh, although not all class action suits do good, and quite often the only people who benefit are, are lawyers, uh, what, it, what we have seen is that banks have uh, used this tool to reduce the ability of 
of consumers to complain against uh, excessive overdraft fees and other issues. So, so the fact that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is saying that's going to stop, you'll no longer be able to use the, the fine print, which you have sort of snuck into all these contracts, uh, creates a very different uh, power dynamic in the discussions between consumers and the banks in the U.S. relative to how they manage their their affairs with each other. So I think it's a, I think uh, the banks are very much against it um, because they realize that sometimes they do things that aren't particularly uh, uh, right, uh, where they've sold insurance policies to individuals that protect them except when they really need it. So the, the, this is a, a couple of examples where uh, customers of Citibank were buying insurance that they were never eligible to use. Well, why is it sold to them if you aren't eligible to use it? And similarly, American Express was challenged uh, by the high processing fees charges to merchants. So consumers and even small businesses are paying the price to funnel more profits to financial institutions. Uh, and it's not clear whether that really leads to much good. So I think this is a, a big change in the U.S. I expect to be lots of fighting about it uh, in the future. Uh, but I think it's a very positive change to level the playing field between consumers and small businesses and the large financial institutions. And in a way, it goes back to what we've been talking about on on the various episodes, which is with values-based banks and values-based financial institutions, this kind of push from a legislation perspective isn't as significant and doesn't have the type of impact that it would have on the more traditional banks because the values-based banks seem to be much more closely connected with their communities and with their customers. So this whole thing of arbitration and fighting the process of arbitration isn't necessarily um, big, as big an issue for the values-based banks, that relationships are first and foremost the thing that drive those organizations. Yeah, and I think the real, the real way, way to think about, Linda, is it's, it's a, way, a values-based bank is also starting with how do I help a client, not how do I exploit them to make money. And <laughs> if you're looking to help a client you don't generally try to sell them insurance that they can never use. That tends not to be on the help your client side of the ledger. <laughs> it's interesting, actually, when you say helping your client and, you know, arbitration. I noticed something in the news yesterday where it looks like the seven big banks have settled um, in the U.S. regarding rate rigging, a lawsuit, a private lawsuit for $324 million. And I just thought it was interesting that that basically it was the world's biggest banks agreeing to pay up in a lawsuit accusing them of rigging an interest rate benchmark in a derivatives market worth $500 trillion. It's like, wow, I mean, where does this stop in terms of accountability? It's like big business thinks it can do anything that it wants to do. Yeah, no, I think that those days are coming to an end. So that's that's hopeful. And I have one more one more set of articles I'd like to cover. So, <laughs> okay, quickly go for it. Okay, the other thing is there's an article in the Financial Times this week uh, about uh, Amalgamated Bank in New York, which has has decided that it's going to pay a living wage. So it has um, decided that it will pay all of its workers a minimum of fifteen dollars an hour. Although the nationwide median for tellers in the U.S. is twelve seventy, twelve dollars and seventy cents, so essentially giving 
really raising the bar. I, and I think this is an example of a bank mm-hmm. taking the lead outside of the banking, but saying basically people should be earning a living wage. And actually, if people earn a living wage, they have more to spend, which helps grow the economy, the real economy. That's actually uh, interesting because that was actually a policy that was adopted by First Green Bank in Florida, member of the Global Alliance, in September of 2014. Um, so, so I think there's other banks looking to jump, jump onto that wagon bandwagon. But I think it's really interesting that we've now got banks saying we should be paying people a living wage. And and so I think that's a really great way in which banks can show leadership. And it's great to see Amalgamated out there doing it. It's great to know that the First Green Bank has been doing that since September 2014, so almost a year and a half. And uh, I really hope we see other banks uh, take this forward. So good, good step forward on the part of banks. Great. And as you say, it's a perfect example of how banks can actually lead um, from a positive social change perspective. It's to support initiatives like this where people get paid not just a minimum wage, where they actually get paid a living wage, so the wage that they require in the region that they're in to basically get by. So, David, thanks for the news roundup. It's great. If people want to follow you on Twitter, what's your handle? Oh, my Twitter handle is uh, hashtag South Dave. If I'm not mistaken, I keep forgetting. <laughs> at, at South Dave, Z U I D. At South Dave. I can never tell you, I always get my ads and my hashtags. Uh, and they can also follow me on my on my blog at uh, uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm a bit behind because I did take a couple weeks off, but I hope to start catching up and uh, putting some more blogs and some of these interesting articles I've been reading in the next few days or so. Great. Okay, David, thanks very much. We look forward to having you on the show again next week. Folks, let's take a break. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. Do you feel it when you work with marketing or PR firms? They're moving in slow motion. Or they just don't know what they're talking about. You won't get that on Marketing at Lightspeed. Host Ethan Raziel and his guest experts will deliver tips and tricks that work at Lightspeed. If you want to accelerate your company's marketing, listen every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are tuned into Building Banking on Values. To reach Linda Ryan or her guests, please send an email to lynda.ryan at gabv.org. 
That's lynda.ryan at gabv.org. You may also join the social media conversation by using hashtag banking on values or tweet show host Linda Ryan at Catalyst Warrior. Now back to building banking on values. Welcome back to the Building Banking on Value show. Uh, right now, our guest is Tamara Vrooman. As President and Chief Executive Officer of Van City, Canada's largest community credit union, Tamara believes that banking has a vital role to play in developing a healthy society, building the well-being of both people and at the same time ensuring the long-term sustainability of the communities in which they live and work. Now, Tamara views the economy as much more than what's written on the balance sheet. It includes things like social and natural economies in which we live. Tamara's achievements at the credit union include leading Van City to become the first carbon-neutral financial institution in North America, the largest private sector living wage employer in Canada, and in fact, we were just talking about the living wage with David uh, prior to the break, and one of the first mainstream financial institutions to launch an alternative to predatory payday loans for its members. Tamara, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Linda. Tamara, you have an interesting, I guess, career path. It seems like you've moved from politics into banking. Can you talk to me a little bit about that transition and, and why you made it? Yeah, sure, sure. I, uh, I've never been in politics per se, but I, uh, I was a senior public servant in the, uh, in the government in the province of British Columbia here in uh, in Western Canada, and so uh, holding positions of Deputy Minister of Health and Deputy Minister of Finance, I worked a lot with a diverse array of people, both uh, in the government, trying to advance uh, policy agendas for the people of British Columbia, but also with private sector leaders who uh, all would come and talk to the government about the things that they thought the government should be doing. And it occurred to me that that the balance of um, of contribution to thinking about the things that we all care about, regardless of where whether we work in the public or the private sectors around, you know, a, a healthy community in which to raise our kids, a sustainable economy uh, to leave for our grandchildren, and a, an inclusive uh, society where people with diverse uh, backgrounds are welcomed and can flourish. We're really goals and aspirations of uh, of people right across both. Um, political spectrums as well as um, in both the prov- public and private sectors. But it occurred to me that the model um, in which the government uh, thought about one side of the thing, uh, uh, of the equation, and the private sector only thought of the other, was inefficient. And really came to see quite clearly that the allocation of capital, in fact, was one of the most powerful levers we had in society. When you think about it, you know, who gets a loan and who doesn't uh, really can make a big difference to the kind of uh, future that we create. And so the role of finance and the role of financial institutions in not only creating uh, sustainability from a single bottom line point of view, but more from a triple bottom line point of view, was something that started to fascinate me in government. And I, I couldn't see very many places uh, in the private sector where people were thinking about the allocation and the tool of finance as a tool not just to build individual and private wealth, but uh, a tool to create sustainability and to allocate wealth and capital to things that 
would ensure that collectively we do better in the future. So that that curiosity led me to um, uh, led me to Van City, uh, and as you said, the largest community based credit union in in Canada with a tradition of corporate sector uh, corporate corporate social responsibility, but hadn't really been using its balance sheet um, in service of of finance and social change. So that was the job that I was hired to do. You know, how could we really put more of the assets uh, in the credit union in service, not just of meeting members' individual needs, which, of course, we continue to do, but also doing it in a way that builds healthy communities and a sustainable future. And in terms of Van City as a credit union, can you tell us a bit more about Van City? For example, the size of the uh, number of members, the, the focus of the credit union, and, and where you're based? Yeah, yeah. Van City actually has a very interesting uh, story. So we are based uh, here on the west coast of Canada. So we're based in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, the, the farthest western major city uh, in our country, just north of Seattle for American listeners. And Vancouver is a city with a population of about 2 million people, uh, quite a diverse uh, population, increasingly uh, diverse in terms of uh, Asian immigrants and Asian influence as we look um, uh, equally to the Pacific as we do uh, to the South, to the United States, and then uh, East to Europe. And Van City started in 1946, so we're a fairly old organization. Um, we started right after the Second World War, where many communities in North America, you know, people were coming back from uh, really decades of conflict, whether it had been the First World War, the, uh, the uh, Great Depression, or the Second World War, and they really just wanted to settle down and have uh, a normal life. And so they wanted to buy a house, raise kids, have a job, just like many people do today, but they were regular people. You know, they were, they were shopkeepers, they were nurses, they were teachers, they were fishermen, they were commissioned salespeople, and they wanted to live in a part of our town. Like many towns, there's a sort of a good side of town and uh, a lesser side of town, if you like, the other side of the tracks. And the place where they could afford and decided to settle was the east side of Main Street, literally across the tracks um, that divide the city of Vancouver as the railway goes down to the port of Vancouver and the ocean. And they found that they couldn't get a mortgage. You know, the big five banks wouldn't lend to them, and they uh, they couldn't uh, they they couldn't get a mortgage, and they couldn't, um, in fact, start to settle down. And it's not that the big five banks didn't know how to do that. Of course they did. But they thought that the houses wouldn't be worth anything, that no one would ever want to live there, really. No one would want to start uh, business, in short, that they were a credit risk. So 14 members each contributed $22 and did for themselves what the big institutions would not. You know, if you think about it, it was the original source of the original form of crowdfunding. They came together and they started Vancouver City Savings Credit Union. And uh, as a result, that idea of doing for yourself and for community and lending to one another and mutual support really grew and thrived as our city grew and thrived. So today we are uh, have assets of about $20 billion, another $4 billion in assets under administration that we manage on behalf of our members, 2,500 employees, almost 60 branches um, throughout uh, throughout the Lower Mainland, serving uh, a little over 500,000 members. 
So it's obvious that this type of um, banking, this people-focused type of banking is, I guess, it's, it's the evidence is it's growing in popularity. And you mentioned um, using the balance sheet in service of people and communities. Can you talk to me specifically about how Van City does that? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things we, we talk about is many organizations uh, now uh, are talking about um, what they do with the money they earn, uh, which is great. And we're seeing many uh, businesses start to think more about corporate social responsibility and what they do with the percentage of their income. But what we're interested in is not so much in what we do with the money we earn, but how we earn it in the first place. So we do uh, contribute 30% of our net income uh, back to our members and our communities each and every year um, uh, to support to support philanthropic organizations, to support community-based organizations. But I think the thing that makes us different is the way that we look at our balance sheet and our business model. So uh, we look to leverage our contribution in everything we do. So as you as you uh, saw, we are a, uh, a living wage employer. And we not only pay our employees a living wage, though, we have extended that to the people who we contract with. So the people who we contract with to clean our branches and our buildings, the people who provide our catering services, the people who provide our security services, the people who provide our career services, all of those services we think um, those folks uh, deserve and need a living wage. And it helps not only um, uh, our business model in terms of them uh, uh providing excellent service to us. We have lower turnover. We have greater retention of those contracted staff, but also it contributes, obviously, to the economy. Other things we've done, uh, we have the first fossil fuel-free fund introduced in Canada. And so if you're a, uh, somebody with high net worth, it's easy to get wealth advice, and you can have all pink stocks if you want. You know, you can choose. Uh, somebody will put together a portfolio for you um, based on your risk tolerance and your interest. But for average working people who maybe have $1,000 to invest or $5,000 to invest, having a retail fund that allows them to put their money um, to use in a way that contributes to the kind of future they want to create, like a low-carbon economy, for example, there wasn't any alternatives on the market for that. Um, so those are the kinds of things that we have done right across our, uh, the spectrum of our business to think not just about uh, financial instruments and building people's individual financial wealth, but to do it, and we definitely do that, but to do it in a way that also contributes to the kind of community and the kind of uh, sustainable environment that we collectively seek. It reminds me of a time, actually, um, I have to say to the listeners that uh, I, I live in Vancouver and I bank, I do bank with Van City. And really, when I first came across Van City, it was from a very interesting perspective. I was looking to to find out about a mortgage. And I had, having just come from Ireland and the financial crisis, and prior to that where I owned property and mortgages were literally thrown at you, you could get 110% mortgages and more money would be thrown at you so you could buy furniture. And one of my first conversations with a Van City member of staff was actually them asking me the question, well, can you really afford this mortgage and let's look at it? And it just, first off, it, it took me by surprise. Um, but really, it was probably the best and most gentle financial advice I had ever received. It was a very open and honest conversation about whether this was the right timing for me and whether in the long run this was the right option for me. 
And to me, it was a real signal that this is a very different kind of uh, financial institution, even from a cultural perspective. And it got me interested in the concept of community investment. Can you give us some examples of how more specifically you invest in community through products or services or even leveraging the people and resources within the organization? Hmm. So there's, uh, there's, there's quite a bit that we, uh, we've been able to do in that regard, but a, but a few examples that, that come to mind. So one of the things that we have uh, seen in, uh, in our community, because our community is very diverse, we have seen, uh, we have seen that a number of people come with um, financial literacy, so they understand, to your point, the banking system in their home country uh, in terms of how it works, but they don't necessarily understand the banking system here. And that really came home to us when we had uh, a gentleman who opened a restaurant and took out a loan, uh, he was from East Africa, took out a loan uh, from us and, uh, and um, uh, came to our head office one evening at 6 o'clock on a Friday uh, with a brown paper bag um, asking for me, the uh, CEO, uh, and the, uh, the the fellow at uh, the door of our office, our, our night security officer, said, well, no, you can't come in and see her, or, or is she expecting you, or I'm not even sure she's here it's, uh, at this time. And he said, no, no, I, I will wait for her then. I absolutely need to see her. And, of course, what he was doing is he was repaying his loan. And in his country, the way you repaid a loan and made sure it got repaid is you had a bag of cash. In this case, he had over $10,000 in wow. a brown paper bag, uh, very unsafe, that he was going to deliver to the president of the bank, and that's how you knew your loan was paid. And so we knew at that moment that there was something literally lost in translation. So we started a program called Each One Teach One, where our staff speak uh, 38 different languages across the organization, would go out into community and meet with community organizations and ordinary people to explain how the banking system in Canada works and, and what uh, different options were and how they could access it and how um, they could get plugged in. Because if you think about it, if, you're not, if you don't have access to a bank account in modern society, it's pretty difficult to, uh, to get on. So we have now... Uh, thousands of uh, each one teach one networks in uh, the lower mainland and they've spread right across the country. Sometimes they take place on transit buses. Sometimes they take place in community halls, really providing financial literacy and also banking literacy and outreach and advice to uh, diverse, uh, diverse communities. Other things we do is we fund businesses that also are interested in contributing to communities. So we have several um, uh, urban gardens that take old parking lots and are able to grow fresh uh, organic produce, um, take those that produce and uh, donate a portion of it to homeless shelters, uh, then charge a premium for it for local restaurants who are very keen to have, of course, local food. It's very popular in Vancouver, as it is in cities right across North America. And then also employ people who are maybe marginalized, recovering from addiction, been homeless, and give them a living wage and skills to rebuild their life through employment. So we're very interested in working with businesses and community partners that, um, that contribute not only to financial sustainability for themselves and their employees, but also do it in a way that contributes to the broader health of our community. And that's been working really well. You know, we continue to grow. Um, we welcome over 30,000 new members to us uh, each and every year for the last four years. 
The majority of those members are young people, millennials, sort of 35 years and younger. So we find that our business model really is resonating with the next generation, which makes us feel very positive for the future. Brilliant. Tamara, thank you very much. And if people want to find out more about Van City and the work that it does, you can go to um, www.vancity.org.com. Dot com. Dot com, vancity.com. And just before we go, I also have to say in 2014, Pope Francis asked Tamara to participate in a Vatican summit entitled The Global Common Good Toward the More Inclusive Economy, uh, where she joined 70 leaders from around the world. And Tamara also spoke about Vancity's model with the Dalai Lama at the 2014 HeartMind Summit in Vancouver. So definitely a different kind of banking. Folks, join us after the break. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K., on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. Do you feel it when you work with marketing or PR firms? They're moving in slow motion. Or they just don't know what they're talking about. You won't get that on Marketing at Lightspeed. Host Ethan Raziel and his guest experts will deliver tips and tricks that work at Lightspeed. If you want to accelerate your company's marketing, listen every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are tuned in to Building Banking on Values. To reach Linda Ryan or her guests, please send an email to lynda.ryan at gabv.org. That's lynda.ryan at gabv.org. You may also join the social media conversation by using hashtag banking on values or tweet show host Linda Ryan at Catalyst Warrior. Now back to building banking on values. Folks, welcome back to Building Banking on Values. We just had Tamara Vrooman, uh, President and Chief Executive Officer of Van City Community-Based Credit Union in Canada, doing lots of very interesting and very positive community investment work. And on the show now, we have Susan Arterian Chang. Susan is the Director of Capital Institute's Field Guide to Investing in a Regenerative Economy. Uh, Susan has a rich past in finance as a blogger on sustainable finance and investing. She's a founder and publisher of The Impact Investor, a financial writer, and not to mention, she's also had a stint as a foreign exchange analyst. As Director of Content Development and the Field Guide to Investing in Regenerative Economy Initiative, Susan has worked in the world of both global capital markets and local economies. 
And Susan's work is also connected to the Capital Institute. And we've had the Capital Institute, John Fullerton, on a previous episode. Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Linda. Nice to be here. So, Susan, tell me about the field guide to investing in a regenerative economy. It's a bit of a mouthful. So, first thing in the morning, I think I got it right. Tell us more about it. Okay. Well, first of all, it is a it's a project of the Capital Institute. Uh, we began it about five years ago with uh, an idea of just doing a story about a holistic management uh, business uh, called Grasslands and. It has morphed into now more than over 30 stories about different enterprises and projects that we feel exemplify uh, what we'd like to see in what we call a regenerative economy. And we work very closely with the conceptual framework that we are developing about the regenerative economy, which has been reflected most recently in uh, Capital Institute's white paper, Regenerative Capitalism, which we released last year and are about to re-release in Spanish for you know a broader audience. And what we do with the field guide is try to ground the conceptual framework in real-world practice. And we have this sort of continuous feedback look of looking at what our theory is and, and looking to see that it's validated in practice and then seeing it in the real world where we're seeing some of the principles and patterns revealed that then help us... Um, reframe in a continual basis what our framework, uh, our theoretical framework should look like. And Susan, what is a regenerative economy? What does it mean? What does it look like? Yeah, well, you know, that's uh, something we're continually struggling with to communicate in an effective way. But I think, you know, in, at bottom, it's looking at what the extractive economy has done and trying to heal. So there's a healing component to it a restoration component to it, but there's also this sort of future-looking evolution where we don't really know where it's going, but what we do know is that all segments of the economy have to work in such a way that all levels of the hierarchy of the economy need to be healthy, and not just the top layer, not just the bottom layer, but every layer, and they all have to be you know, supporting one another. We, we do believe that there has to be a hierarchy, but it has to be a healthy hierarchy. And what, what does the hierarchy look like in terms of the economy? Can you explain to our listeners? Well, you know, a lot of the projects that we look at are grassroots projects because, you know, naturally a lot of this, the innovation is happening from the grassroots up. Uh, so I would say, I would say the majority of the projects we look, like, look at are things that are, you know, happening in the food system at a local level, uh, city regeneration, economic democracy initiatives that go on sort of at the grassroots. We are looking a lot at cooperative models that are, you know, starting in communities where, you know, the, the private enterprise system just hasn't worked. Uh, but at the same time, we do believe that, you know, that every layer of the economy has to contribute to this regeneration process. And, you know, I could say, for example, we recently did a story about uh, um, dairy farm, which I guess would be considered ag in the middle, not not a small dairy farm, but sort of a middle mid-sized dairy farm that is actually partnering with a global corporation, Dannon, uh, to because both of them are aligned in their practices in terms of trying to further their sustainability. Uh, and so you can see where a large company and a smaller company can actually partner with one another in a mutually supportive way 
to affect this transition that we want to see. So it's really, I guess it's really about then uh, telling stories um, of organizations and initiatives that are helping to fix what is really a broken economy and, and whether that fixing occurs, as you say, with, through relationships between big business and smaller initiatives or cooperative models. Um, the, there are solutions out there and in you telling the story, you're raising awareness of how to fix these problems and you're providing almost a practical guide as to how it can be done. Yeah, I think with the field guide, we're trying to do a couple of things, maybe three things. One is to just inspire the general public and, and let people realize that there are, there are these, these really interesting projects and enterprises that are a lot of them below the radar screen of the mass media right now. Although we were very proud to see that our story on McCarty Family Farms and Danon was actually picked up by the New York Times uh, last week in a major story in the, business, in the business section of the New York Times. So some of these um, projects are starting to get more mass media attention, which we love to see. But for the most part, they're not. And so we hope that people will come to the Field Guide website and get inspired and think about how perhaps they could transform their own communities. So there's a part of sort of almost a guide or handbook aspect to it that you know, what we hope are going to inspire people who might want to take on projects or start enterprises that are similar. And perhaps they can start to share um, knowledge with one another. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing. I mean, it's, it's what I come across a lot, um, especially in, in working in the values-based banking industry and like you and, and helping to raise awareness and tell the stories. It still amazes me how each week I'll come across a different organization that I'd never heard of before and they're actually doing either aligned work or very similar work. And it, it, it's, it's, it just strikes me that there's a massive opportunity out there for for us to raise awareness on a public level and on, on an initiative level for us all to begin to, to connect. Uh, really, that's where the change happens. It's when you people stop working in, in, in silos and actually start to make these connections to like-minded initiatives, organizations, and even within communities, because then we, we gather momentum and then we actually have a movement. Yeah, I think the, the network building is the most powerful aspect of what we need to be doing right now. And, you know, we often find that we talk to one business or, or project in one part of the country and we can say, oh, you know, somebody on the other side of the country is doing something similar or maybe you can help each other out and, you know, we'd like to connect you with each other. And, you know, that is the power of the, power of the network building. And so, you know, the hierarchies are also interesting because you could say that the hierarchy can actually be a lot of small businesses connecting with one another in, into some kind of more complex system. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, in this whole concept, like you, you've spoken about hierarchy, you've spoken about fixing the economy, cooperative models. What are you experiencing and seeing in terms of banking and values-based banking and how this can contribute to fixing the economy? Well, uh, we've actually embarked on a project last year called, um, uh, it was a year in the life of a regenerative bank, and one of the banks, the bank that we chose was um, First Green Bank, which happens to be a GABV bank, and actually we were introduced by David Corslin to, to them. 
And um, we sort of have followed the bank over the course of a year to see how they can deepen their values-based practices. We went down and visited them with, with mentors. We videotaped, and we actually have a, a microsite where we, we have followed them and documented the various things that we did with them. And um, I, I think we learned some really interesting lessons about how challenging it is to operate a values-based bank here in the United States. And in this particular environment, because it's, he was uh, the, the CEO, Ken LaRoe, started his bank in uh, a small town in central Florida where they were going through a transition from a rural citrus-based economy basically to sort of rampant real estate development. And he wanted to arrest that and try to make sure that this transition was not going to turn into, you know, what we see so often happening in other parts of the country where there's this sort of unthoughtful development going on. Uh, so he was, he's really been challenged in doing that because he's not in the most progressive part of the country. And so he's really been looking for partners in, in lend people and businesses to whom they, that he can lend and the bank could lend. But the other big challenge that he faces, and I think other banks in the United States that try to become values-based banks, is that he has to meet very often short-term uh, expectations for financial gain from the, their investors, especially if you didn't start out with all values-based investors. It's, you know, you bring in investors who may like the idea of values because they think it's a, a good marketing um, technique, but may not have the long-term perspective that you might want to have as the person who's, um, you know, guiding the bank. And uh, so we've had some really interesting conversations with investors and with, with Ken about how he's going to be managing that. And um, I actually wanted to read something because it was one of my favorite um, quotes from uh, as part of the project. Uh, right. Ken and um, David Korsland got together when, when David was down uh, visiting there, and we videotaped them talking. And David was trying to encourage Ken to think about ways to talk to his investors, um, to think about what returns might be in more than purely financial terms. And I just loved what he said, and I hope you'll let me read it to you. Yeah, um, please. What, what he said was, if your investors end up with shares and a solid return they can give to their children and grandchildren, that is real value. That is real wealth. And he said, so how can you inspire your, investor, your investors to think about that? about a safe financial return, but a super values return in terms of what they're doing for their community. It's a different way of thinking about meeting investor demands and then inspiring investors to think that this is what I want. I want to leave my grandchildren a share of stock. I know we'll leave them solid, we'll give them solid income every year, but at the same time leave the community in which they live better off with jobs, with an environment that is safe, and with healthy and happy people. And I just thought that was just such a down-to-earth, real way to capture what, what a values-based bank investment really should be for the investor. You know, and I, I know that, that Ken will continue to struggle with this, but I think it was a great piece of advice, and um, I would think that other banks in similar situations might want to heed that advice when they're dealing with their investors. Yeah, and it's interesting. Looked, 
It's interesting you say struggle. I mean, and it's, it's a very, it's, Ken is very open in the challenges faced by values-based banks in trying to um, approach banking and put it back in service of the communities from a positive perspective. And I've even heard Tamara say the same thing, you know, that it's incredibly energizing, but it's also tiring because it's a very different banking model and it's a very different fight really from a banking perspective. Um, we're, we're quite short on time so I know you also have covered other stories which we don't have time to go into but I'll just mention them. Um, you spoke about First Green Bank, you also covered a story on New Resource Bank and Sunrise Bank both in the USA. Um, so Susan, if people want to actually watch the videos and read more um, from a field guide to learn more about the practical examples and case studies you've uh, conducted from a banking perspective, what's your website address? Okay, so if you want to go and see the stories on New Resource and on Sunrise Banks, you should go to fieldguide.capitalinstitute.org. And, and then, as I mentioned, we have a whole microsite devoted to the year in the life of a regenerative bank, and that is regenerativebankproject.capitalinstitute.org. Fantastic. Susan, it's been great having you on the show, and I would definitely recommend you go and check out the site. There's some just very authentic, very human-focused uh, stories about how banks and other types of organizations can really affect this change in, in building a more positive, uh, regenerative economy. So, Susan, thanks very much. Let me just um, take you uh, to the end of the show. just wanted to take a quick look at what's happening in the Twitter sphere under the hashtag Banking on Values. Just in the last few days, um, obviously, we had the uh, some news on the anonymous cyber attacks on central banks and their uh, commitment, if you can call it that, for a 30-day uh, rage of cyber attacks on banking. It just goes to show you the sentiment out there, you know, that people aren't happy with banks, but I guess that's not news for us. Um, hopefully the show will give you some examples of how banking can be positive and can change and how we can fuel that movement. The Wall Street Journal are also talking about the living wage. And I also posed a question to the banks out there, um, you know, and made a call to action. Well, can we all commit um, from a banking perspective to at least pay a living wage? It's a significant step, but it would be a huge step. Uh, Triodos Bank, we're hosting a very open debate publicly on how ethical business and ethical banking should raise its voice on drug policy reform. And we had Ken Friedman talking about how credit unions are the original sharing economy. Next week on the show, join us where we will meet Darren Williams from Southern Bank Corp. Inc. in the USA and Marlos Nichols of the Finance Innovation Lab on Meteos. UK. Both are leading grassroots change in banking from community development solutions to Occupy and innovation movements. So really interesting guests on the show next week. And don't forget to share the show uh, and why not join the conversation. So you can tweet me at Catalyst Warrior and you can tweet the show at Voice AM Business. Thanks for joining. You are part of this movement. You are all bankers. Please share the show and talk about it. Until next week, talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Building Banking on Values. Please join your host, Linda Ryan, again next Thursday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope to see you here next week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.